Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high. Who stoops down to look to the, on the heavens and the earth. Who raises the poor from the dust. And lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes. With the princes of his people. Verse 9. He settles the childless woman in our home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> and so over the past few weeks, welcome if this is your first time. But over the past... Can you hear me? Oh, thank you. Over the past three weeks, we've been looking at we've been looking at prayer. What is going on? Sorry. (laughs) My job is to give them high blood air pressure. We've been looking at prayer. And prayer is one of the emphases of City Church. And we've been looking at what it means to pray kingdom advancing prayers. Prayers that in essence tell God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And today we are going to conclude the series. So I want to talk a bit about um, redundancy. I'm an engineer by profession, and <clears throat> in engineering design, one of the things you take into consideration is redundancy. I know when we talk about redundancy, our mind goes to job loss, but redundancy is not always a bad thing. In engineering terms, redundancy is simply providing a backup, introducing multiple elements in a system that can do the same thing in the event of a failure. And we are all familiar with this type of redundancy. It's why when we are renting a house or a flat, we want a house that has multiple entry and exits. It's why all of us, or most of us, have redundancy against NEPA. Some of us even have small gen, big gen, and inverter. But there are areas of life where we look at redundancy differently, where it's no longer a good thing. Obviously, job loss is one of them. 
But another one is in conversation. We hate having redundant conversations. And so a while back, one of our relatives was visiting. I was still a kid then. And we were watching football when he came. And he now asked, who and who are playing? Fair question. Nigeria and South Africa. Next thing he asked, who is wearing green? <laughs> Nigeria, of course. And we thought that was the end of it. But like he didn't know. Do you know the next question he asked? Who is wearing yellow? <laughs> and we're like, really? You really expect an answer? We hate having redundant conversations. But well, there's another type of redundant conversation. Not all redundant conversations are the same. There's another type that looks equally ridiculous on the surface, but it's actually quite different. And so we had another relative stay with us for a while, and she had an interesting way of talking. So she may see you sitting down and ask you, are you sitting down? <laughs> and I feel like, okay. Well, she continued. She'll see you washing your clothes and ask you, are you washing your clothes? And if not for respect, I said, no, 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 I'm playing football. <laughs> well, the one that blew my head was the day she saw me in the morning and asked me, are you awake? <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm having a nightmare having this conversation with you. <laughs> well, it was a while after that it actually clicked. So what she was doing was translating greetings directly from our language into English. And so, you know, when you translate, you lose something in translation. And so why to her she was making sense? To us, it was a redundant conversation. And this psalm is a bit like that. It is full of commands to praise God. And it looks redundant on the, on the surface. Yes, I know I should praise God. Of course, I know. Why are you going on and on and on about it? But we are going to see that there is something deeper going on. And we'll see in this psalm that the command to praise God is a call to recenter our focus on our great and gracious God who rescues the oppressed in answer to prayers. And in this sermon titled, Who is like our God? We'll look at it under two headings. I'm sorry, Pastor Femi. <laughs> a great and gracious God and a grateful and gracious people. So let's go to the first one. A great and gracious God. The psalm starts with a sentence, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, or his Hebrew form, Hallelujah has fallen on hard times lately. We often use it often in a way that is far removed from its original context. And so many times when we say, praise the Lord or hallelujah, here's what we often mean. Can I have your attention? Or we mean, are you following what I'm saying? And this one is a bit funny. It's mostly pastors that do that. They could mean, I've lost my train of thought. And so it's like... <laughs> He's trying to remember what's my next point. So he just keeps going, hallelujah. <laughs> Glory to God. But it doesn't mean that at all. It's an instruction, a command even. You praise the Lord. And the psalmist does not just command us to praise the Lord just once. He tells us six times in the entire psalm. In fact, in verse 1 alone, he tells us three times. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. What does it mean to praise? To praise is to speak well of something or someone. To express admiration and enjoyment. To praise is to testify and bear witness to the goodness of a thing or a person. 
And here's the thing about praise. Praise is a natural outflow when there's enjoyment. How do we know that people know that we like something? Because we can't stop talking about it. It's almost as if we want everybody to come and share in what we're enjoying. And there are people here that can relate. I call them God's favorites. Who are they? The people that have eaten Tomisin's jollof rice and chicken. <laughs> they know what I'm talking about. They can't stop talking about it. <laughs> One of them went, came, went to her and said, See, I will take care of the business end. But the whole world needs to taste your food and believe that God exists. <laughs> Tomisin is my wife, by the way. Praise comes naturally when there's enjoyment. And that's what verse 2 and 3 are saying. That praising God should be the natural state of things. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Every time and everywhere, we should be praising God. But here's the question. If God is so wonderful, so incredible, why do we have to be commanded to praise him? I think it's possible, and Tommy alluded to this two weeks ago. I think it's possible that we can get so used to who he is that we forget to praise him. When I think about human ingenuity and creativity, the place that my mind goes to is Dubai. The first time I was outside Nigeria, I was to Dubai. And I was just like, oh my goodness. And I don't think it's just because it was my first time. I think most people, Nigerians especially, but most people, the first time they see Dubai, and we have some pictures up, they are stupefied. My father had been traveling since the 70s to all sorts of places. You see his passport booklets, his old ones, they were a huge pile. But the first time he went to Dubai in the 2000s and came back, he came back and preached about heaven for one month straight. If human beings can build something like that, oh, I wonder how heaven is going to be. When I saw the fountain, the dancing fountain, I wanted the rapture to happen immediately. <laughs> but as a group of people who are not impressed by Dubai, you know who they are? Residents of Dubai. And of course, it's very easy to recognize the tourists, the people moving about with their mouth open, looking in their head, turning from place to place. And the residents will look at them and roll their eyes or shake their head. But it has not always been that way for them. Somebody here who used to live in Dubai told me that the first time she went to Dubai and saw that fountain at the mall, cold crocker, not cold crocker, goosebumps, filled her entire body. Well, after a while, or they would just walk past <laughs> with hardly a glance. Dubai did not cease to be awesome. But they got so used to it that they lost their sense of awe. Guys, God is still great. He's still awesome. He's still incredible. But is it possible that we have lost our sense of awe? And in the same way the residents of Dubai shake their heads at tourists who their mouths are open. We come to church and we shake our heads at people kneeling down. At people singing with all their hearts. At people who are, God forbid, dancing. But you know what else happens when we lose sight of the greatness of God? We neglect to pray. Prayer is an expression of our dependence on God. 
And sometimes the same reason we do not praise is the same reason we do not pray. We have lost sight of the greatness of God. James chapter 4 tells us that sometimes we do not receive because we do not ask. Like the hymn says, oh, what needless pain we bear. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We have become like a man that lives by the river but washes his hand with saliva. The same way verse 3 tells us, brothers and sisters, that from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Bible also tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17 to pray without ceasing. Why? When we pray, we are confessing that every wicked moment we are sustained by God. That it is in him we live and move and have our being. We are saying that except the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. We are agreeing with Jesus Christ that without him, we can do nothing. What we need is to recover our focus on God. And this is what praise does for us. It recenters us. It reminds us exactly who it is that we are dealing with. The Psalms talking about praise often talk about God being magnified. It doesn't mean that God increases in size, of course not. But it means that our view of God is expanded. And that's what the psalmist tries to do for us in the rest of the psalm. He reminds us of the greatness of God in verse 4 to 6. And then he reminds us of the goodness of God in verse 7 to 9. First, the greatness of God. Verse 4. The Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high. Who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. Who is like the Lord? In verse 4 we see how he's different from all the other gods. He's not limited to a particular jurisdiction. But he reigns over all the nations. Who is like the God, our God? He's not a God that is limited to by creation. He's not a sky God or a, a water God or a forest deity. But his glory is above the heavens. And verse 6 says something absolutely incredible. That this God is so great that he has to stoop. To look down on not just the earth, but the heavens as well. And if you think about how big space really is, this verse is beyond amazing. Sometime last month, new photos from space were released. And if you look at, if you look at it, can we have it up? Each of these dots is a galaxy. Each of them, as small as they are, is a collection of over a hundred billion stars. Each of those stars a thousand of a th thousands of times bigger than the earth. Twinkle, twinkle, little stars. A bit of an understatement. And so we do not see the earth here. We can't see it. It's too small. So we have to zoom in into one of these dots. And if we were to zoom in into one of them to our galaxy. Can we see the next picture? This is our galaxy. One of those dots. It's called the Milky Way. Again, we do not see the earth. But we can see the solar system. Where we live, our neighborhood. No, go back, please. Our neighborhood is this small dot here. So we have to zoom into the dot yet again. 
And if we were to zoom into the solar system, next one. If this was the sun, this is a scale representation. Which of the earth, which of these is the earth? This one. This one. All 7.8 billion of us there. All our hopes, our achievements, our dreams. There. The problem that we think is too big for God. There. We are less than microscopic on a cosmic scale. We are a dot in a dot in a dot. And for any sane person that has thought about it, the question on your mind is the same question in the mind of David when he said in Psalms 8, Psalms 8 When I consider thy heavens, the walk of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? You are mindful of him. Or the son of man that you visit him. The answer, of course, is in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 17. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. The only appropriate response to a God that is so great is in Psalms 95, verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. C.S. Lewis, a British writer, says the true test of being in the presence of God is that we either forget about ourselves altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. Can you see, brothers and sisters, how irrational, how ridiculous it is to not pray, to have access to the power that created the universe and yet not take advantage of that access? My people will say that you're swimming inside water and soap is entering inside your eye. Again, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. But someone may say, I do not pray not because I doubt the greatness and power of God. I just don't think God cares. And that's what the psalmist addresses in the rest of the verses. You cannot think that way. God isn't just great. He's also gracious and good. And he intervenes in the case of the helpless. Verse 7. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles a childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Some versions render ash heap as dunghill. What happened in those days was that things were not using again. They are discarded. Human waste refuse. They put them in a pile outside the city. It was a hill of dung. And from time to time, they will set it on fire. And so a dunghill was an ash heap. Can you imagine how destitute someone had to be to be living in such a place? Remember in those days, Hospitality was a really big deal. And so for you to be living in an ash heap, in a, in a dunghill, meant that you had absolutely nobody. You were utterly wretched and hopeless. How about a childless woman? To be unable to bear children, to struggle with infertility is a harrowing experience. The cycles of hope and disappointment, the struggle to be happy with, for other people who get pregnant, the emotional toll it takes on your marriage. 
But to people, to the Jews, it was more than that. You see, God had given Abraham a promise that he will have his descendants who have a child through him, through whom all the nations will be blessed. And so to be unable to bear children was, in a real sense, to be excluded from the purposes of God. Women who couldn't bear kids were not just economic and social outcasts. They were spiritual outcasts as well. But it's to people like this that everyone has counted out that God stoops to. He cleans beggars up and gives them beauty for their ashes. He gives children to those who do not have, and the scripture is full of examples of this. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth. Here is the point. Your brokenness does not disqualify you from the attention of God. No, it makes you a candidate for mercy. In your distress, do not become like Sarah who became cynical and laughed at the promise of God. Do not become like Rachel who put her hope in man and cried to her husband, give me children or else I will die. Be like Hannah who poured out her soul to God in prayer. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 19 that the Lord remembered Hannah. And the childless woman became a happy mother of children. Why does he do this? Why does he even bother? It's because he is the Lord, the Lord. The compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. That is his name. That is who he is at his core. He loves to help those who are broken and rejected and despised. Like Psalm 113, Psalm 35 also asks the question, who is like our God? But unlike Psalm 113 that answers with the greatness of God, Psalm 35 verse 10 says, All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you? Who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him? And the afflicted and the needy from him that robs him. God is not just infinitely great, brethren. He's also infinitely gracious and full of mercy. And he proves this over and over and over again in the scriptures. Moses reminds the Jews in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you. And choose you because you were more numerous than all other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. That he brought you out from the mighty hand. And redeemed you from the land of slavery. This is our God. This is who he is. But nowhere else is the character of God more glaring than in the gospel. In Christ, both the goodness and the greatness of God are on full display. The eternal sovereign God of the universe emptied himself of glory. He chose to be born to a poor laborer and his fiancée. Where does he grow up? Among the weakest, among the rejected in a town called Nazareth. A place where simply to be born from there was to be scorned and rejected. Remember, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus lived his life on earth, inviting the outcasts in, healing the lepers, eating with sinners, raising people from the ash heap. But he was going to stoop even further. Because you see, the physical and social ash heaps were terrible. But they are an outworking of something that was much worse. We're all in a spiritual hardship, dead in our trespasses and sins. 
But unlike the lepers in the Bible that went to Jesus crying for help, we were content to live and die in our sins. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we lived our lives gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. We're by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, God, who is rich in mercy, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. How does he do it? In Christ, God doesn't just utter a word from a distance to lift us from the ash heap of our sins. He goes to the ash heap himself. When John the Baptist sees Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He was saying that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system where a lamb was killed every year by the high priest for the sin of the people. And his blood was taken into the Holy of Holies for atonement. But what also happened was that the body was not eaten, but it was taken outside the camp and burned. The body of the sacrificial lamb, lamb became an ashheap. And the writer of Hebrews commenting on this says, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are born outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gates to make the people holy through his own blood. God's grandest display of his greatness is not in the size of the universe he created, but in the display of his goodness in an ash heap outside Jerusalem. Who is like our God? He's Jesus on the cross, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, by whose stripes we have been healed. Amazing love. How can this be? That thou, my God, will die for me. Amazing love. How can this be? That thou, my God, will die for me. No wonder John the Apostle, thinking about this, exclaims, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. He has lavished on us that we should be called, not the servants, in verse 1 of chapter 113, but that we should be called the sons of God. Because he did not just lift us to sit with earthly princes in Psalm 8 of 113. But he raised us and seated us in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, the Prince of Peace, far above all principalities and powers. This is the gospel that the God of the universe stooped to the lowest of depths so that he could raise us to the highest of heights. And I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, have you experienced the greatness and the goodness of God in Christ Jesus? And let the redeemed of the Lord say so. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is in the house of a guy called Simon the Pharisee. And a sinful woman comes to anoint his feet. And the guests are scandalized. They are angry. But Jesus said, those who have been forgiven much will love much. That's the reason the word for worship in the Greek means to prostrate yourself. To bow down, to kiss someone's hand like a dog will lick his master's hand. It is the posture of people who understand what has been done for them. It's the posture of people who understand that my sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Sissy Winans, imagining what the sinful woman I've been thinking, says, don't be angry. If I wash his feet with my tears and I dry them with my hair, you were not there. The night Jesus found me. He did not feel what I felt when he wrapped his loving arms around me. And you don't know the cost of the oil in my alabaster box. 
Let people laugh. Let them look at you weird. Who cares? I want to give God the glory that he deserves. Remember the song we sing back in the day? With our hands lifted up to the sky. When the world wonders why. We'll just tell them we're loving our King. Oh, we'll just tell them we're loving our King. My brothers and sisters, praise isn't just speaking to God. It's also speaking to ourselves about God. Reminding ourselves that this God is faithful. That this God answers prayers. Has it ever happened to you that you slept overnight or maybe you were at home for hours without light only to discover that there has been light all this while? But you didn't change over. You did not know. Everybody, it has happened to everybody. It's painful. Extremely painful. So what people started doing was that they installed a siren. And so immediately there is power. The siren starts shouting. Praise is like a siren into our distress. It's like a siren into our forgetfulness. And there is power available. There has always been power available. The God that created the entire universe is for you. When we begin to praise God and say with the psalmist in Psalm 62, on God rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is, in, is him. You know what happens? Faith begins to rise in our hearts. We begin to believe God and we can then personalize what the next verse says. I will trust in him at all times. I will pour out my heart before him. Because this God is a refuge for us. Praise is a fuel for faith-filled prayer. God is a refuge for us. But it doesn't end there. When we praise and remember the goodness of God, it leads us to walk to raise others from the dust. My second point, my second and final point, a grateful and gracious people. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Are you inviting others? Remember, praise you want other people to come and share in what you've enjoyed? Are you inviting others to share in what you've experienced? Are you calling other people on the dunghill of their sin to come and experience the goodness of God? In 2 Kings chapter 7. There's a famine in Israel. So bad. That people kill their kids to eat just to survive. And some lepers realize that God has ended the famine. But nobody knows. And so see what happens from verse 8. I'm going to say, read it how I imagine it. And the men with leprosy, they reach the edge of the camp. This is the camp that God had defeated the enemies. He had created an abundance. They entered inside one of the tents. They ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. Then they returned and entered on that tent and took things from them and hid them also. If I want to apply to us, we come for GC, we come for Sunday service, we come for Kingdom Prayer Day, we ask questions in Q&A and we keep it to ourselves. But they told themselves in verse 8, then they said to each other, what we are doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we are keeping it to ourselves. What we are doing is not right. 
This is a day of good news. And we are keeping it to ourselves. What we are doing is not right. We cannot continue keeping the good news of the gospel to ourselves. This is a day of good news. Today is the day of salvation. And we will not see gospel renewal in our city if we do not preach the gospel. Maybe the issue is that we are afraid. Maybe the issue is that we don't know what to say. Do you know what you can do? You can pray. Like Paul. God, whenever I speak, may words be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Maybe the issue is that you're afraid. You can pray like the disciples. Oh God, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And God, I pray, let this be our story in City Church. That the Lord gave the word and great was the company of the preachers. Stretch forth your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Let the gospel grow mightily and prevail in the city of Lagos. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But also, and that dunghill that people need lifting from is a dunghill of poverty, of exclusion, of marginalization. God has always had a heart for the oppressed, the poor, and the downtrodden. In fact, the main reason God judged Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality. Ezekiel tells us in chapter 16, now this was the sin the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. And he goes on, he says, Therefore, I did, they did haughty and detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. God doesn't often leave the helpless miraculously. Like we saw in 2 Kings chapter 7, he uses his people to do this. Do this. In the Old Testament, he gave them laws like the year of Jubilee, debt forgiveness after seven years. Not harvesting everything in your field so the poor can have something to eat. But today he has mandated you and me to carry on this work. Christians have always understood that the mission of God goes hand in hand with the heart for the suffering. In fact, the Bible actually uses mercy and grace for shorthand for people who are Christians. In the story of Lazarus and the rich man, the only bad thing we are told about the guy was that he feasted sumptuously every day. While Lazarus was at his gate, full of souls, desiring to be eaten, to eat from the crumbs that fell from his table. First John chapter 3, verse 17 is even more explicit. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can God's love abide in, in him? And I put it there. It doesn't. Here's why. Someone who has experienced the grace of God cannot help, cannot help, but show that same love, that same grace to others. Have you ever been around someone that eats garlic? They boom garlic. <laughs> Every time they open their mouth, garlic. If they decide to keep quiet, when they sweat, you will smell the garlic from them. This is how a Christian booms grace. Everywhere they go. Are there people in bad situations because of their feelings, because of their personal decisions? Of course. But the Christian remembers that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. It's not about what people deserve or not, but about how God has been extraordinarily gracious to you in Christ Jesus. Where can we start? 
There are two things you can do right now. Well, one or two things. But where can you start? We have a Jubilee Fund where we pull resources as a church to do justice and mercy. The Jubilee Fund pays for hospital bills, feeds hungry people, helps people that cannot afford accommodation, pays for school fees for people, and skill acquisition programs. And I want to encourage us, can we donate to the Jubilee Fund? But not just donate, budget to be God's instrument to show the kindness of God to a suffering world. We also have our justice initiatives. And it's something we do every year at, at our GC, our gospel community, our small group level, where we bring God's love to people that are less fortunate than us. And over the past years, GCs in their just initiatives have bought jam forms for people who cannot afford it. They've raised money to support education-focused NGOs. They've paid for accommodation for people who have been displaced. They have supported orphanages. They have organized legal aid for people unjustly in prison. And this year, we are going again. We are going again. Can I ask you, please, commit to the justice initiative in your GC. Take advantage of this opportunity to display the grace we have received from God. But there's something else. We do when we engage in mercy and justice. We are not just displaying grace. We are also announcing, advancing, and anticipating God's kingdom. Let me tell you a story. In 1973, my father was in a, on a missions trip to a place called Elime in River State. You may know it now. There's a refinery there. And deep into the village, deep in the village, they found a lonely old widow. She was living in a dilapidated mud hut. The roof had fallen in. She was dressed in rags. She looked so wretched. She was so poor that she didn't have plates. She was eating from the little food she had. She was eating from a tree trunk that had a hole in the middle. When they saw her, what did they do? They didn't talk to her about total depravity. They told her, Jesus sent us with gifts for you because he loves you. They gave her clothes. They gave her plates. They gave her food. But they did not stop there too. Afterwards, they preached the gospel to her and she came to faith in Christ. And some days later, and here's the point we're going to, where we're going to, they went back to visit her. And surprisingly, she was back to wearing rags and eating again from the tree trunk. What happened? They asked her, Mama, what happened? Did anybody rob you? What is going on? Where are the clothes? Where are the plates at least? And Mama, one day, because that was her name, she said, I kept them aside so that when I get to heaven, I'll use the place to eat with Jesus. And I'll use the clothes in heaven. And they had to explain to her that yes, there's enjoyment in heaven. But God's kingdom is present with us now. And we get some of those blessings right now. There's a time coming when there will be no more poor in the land. When there will be no more pain. When God will wipe away every tear from every eye. But right now, we experience some of the blessings and the power of that coming kingdom. God is still renewing us. He's still healing people. He's still lifting up the poor. And when we walk for the cause of the oppressed and the needy, we are saying, God, we want your kingdom to come. We want to see your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is because we are looking forward to his kingdom fully arriving. Now we can push back on the darkness with our evangelism and acts of justice and mercy. Like Pastor Femi says often, it's because we are looking forward to a new Jerusalem. That we can work for a renewed Lagos and a renewed Nigeria. 
But there are some issues that are too big for you and I to fix. There are some issues that pass us. And when we think about the oppression and suffering and wickedness and poverty and need in our city, in our country, it can sometimes be overwhelming. And it's getting worse every day. Some of us are afraid to pick up calls again. Because you know that it's one story after the other of poverty and need and cries for help. Some people are saying we are talking about raising people from a dunghill, but every day I see myself slowly slipping into the dunghill of poverty. Some people are saying your own is good. I'm already deep inside it. Some people are saying the way our country is going. Every day I'm concerned about the future of my children. And when we think about Nigeria, say, oh, yes, some people are doing extremely well here and there. But the truth of the matter is that if we consider the oppression, the unrest, the poverty, the wickedness, the situation is bleak. But praise reminds us that we have access to someone with whom nothing is impossible. Praise reminds us that we have access to someone with whom nothing is impossible. Traditional wisdom will tell us, focus on the things within your control. But we know someone who has all things under his control. And not only that, it is his will to intervene in the plight of the oppressed. Psalm 4 verse 5 says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Can we rise to our feet? There are many prayers, there are many prayers that we can pray that we don't know if it's God's will to answer. But this one of let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it's in heaven, we know that he will do it. Kingdom advancing prayers are not trying to overcome God's reluctance. They are taking hold of God's highest willingness. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus Love people Love Lagos